Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are going to read Ezekiel 38 and hopefully 39. If you find Ezekiel 38 and 39 in your Bible, stick your finger there and go to Revelation 20. Because last week, as we read the vision of the dry bones and then the explanation of the vision and the reunion of Judah and Israel like two sticks in God's hands, the chapter ended with the Davidic covenant. My servant David will be king over them and they will all have one shepherd and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. And they shall live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. And it will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God, and they will be my people, and the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. And I said last week that since this is the time of the kingdom being described, that most probably that equates to the thousand years, the time of the millennium. The next thing that we see in chapter 38 is the war against Gog and Magog. And that timeline is the same timeline that we find in Revelation 20. We find the reference to the thousand years, to what we would call the millennium, and then it's right behind that that we find the war with Gog and Magog. So let's read from Revelation 20 for a moment, starting in verse 1. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the keys of the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Okay, what do the words thousand years mean? Thousand years. It means thousand years. That's exactly what it means. Even in the Greek, there's really not a whole lot of question about what it's saying. And he threw him into the abyss, and he shut it, and he sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. That's twice now of the six times that you're going to hear thousand years here. Not only does John make sure we know it's actually a thousand years, but then he's going to repeat it six times for clarity's sake. After these things, he must be released for a short while. So after the thousand years, Satan must be released for a short time. During the thousand years, he's held in the abyss so that he cannot deceive the nations. Then he's released for a short time, for a short period. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus Christ and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, 
and did not receive the mark upon their forehead and upon their hand. And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Just for clarity's sake, verse 4 is talking about the souls of those who had the testimony of Jesus and the word of God, who did not take the mark. Those are the ones who came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's what John refers to as the first resurrection. That's why he can say blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. It's not until a thousand years later that the rest of the dead are raised. That is not the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the beginning of the thousand years. Those people are the ones who did not take the mark on their hand or forehead. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So verse 6 can say, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. So at the end of the thousand years, when the rest of the dead come to life, that's actually referred to as the second death. Because they're raised again and then judged by God thrown into outer darkness, or into the lake of fire. It's the second death. But blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. That's exactly what we read back in verse 3, that after these things, he's going to be released for a short time. Satan's released from his prison, and where does he go? Verse 8, he will come out to deceive the nations, which is what he cannot do for a thousand years while he's bound. He will come deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war, the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Where is the beloved city? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, with that background, let's go over to Ezekiel 38, because remember that Ezekiel, just like I kept pounding in men's meeting last night as we were talking about the book of Romans, I kept saying, remember this is a letter. Remember that the numbers don't count. Remember that the verse numbers, chapter numbers, don't divide by those. Just read the flow of what Paul is saying. Same thing here. If you're looking at the flow of what Ezekiel is seeing and writing, he has described a time when God is going to raise up all of Israel, and then he's going to bring them into their own land. He's going to reunite Judah and Israel. They're going to have one King David over them. All of that sounds very much like the millennium to me. I don't know where else to put that historically. It hasn't happened yet. I doubt if it's going to happen prior to God actually establishing the kingdom that the Hebrews have been waiting for, that Israel has been waiting for, 
and the coming back of Christ to establish that kingdom so that he can take up David's throne as David's greater son, sitting on David's throne in Jerusalem. That just all seems to fit together very nicely and conveniently to me. But the very next thing that Ezekiel sees is that the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog. So Revelation tells us the thousand years is going to occur, and then Satan is going to be released, and he's going to make a beeline for Gog and Magog. And he's going to gather the nations of the earth that will fight with him. They will come and attack Jerusalem, which is the same thing we're going to see here. And at that point, God is going to destroy them. So let's take a moment and, well, when I say let's, how about me? You sit there. I'll take a moment. I'm going to read a little bit out of Fred Zaspel's little booklet here. Fred, long before there was an internet, used to write theological position papers. And then he would print them up and bind them just like this and send them out to people, which is a great way to communicate before there was internet. Now you can find most of these papers of his on the internet. But this is his position paper on the nations of Ezekiel 38 and 39, who will participate in that battle. Because there are cities, nations, that are named particularly in the early parts of chapter 38. And if you are a left-behind aficionado, if you read those books and say, okay, they know what they're talking about, then you're expecting a blonde sort of Nordic kind of antichrist who's going to be a, a wizard of a businessman, and he's going to bring Russia down against Israel. Fred argues that the names that are written in Ezekiel 38 do not and cannot be applied to any Russian city. It can't be Tobolsk. It can't be Moscow. It can't even be Russia. The place that people get confused about it is that they read the phrase, the place of the north, the furthest north, and they say, well, if we're thinking about the place of the furthest north, then that has to be Russia because the western end of Russia would be the furthest north from Israel, but actually further north than that would be Sweden and Switzerland and Finland and that kind of stuff. So if you're going to go further north, if you're going to go furthest north, just keep going till you get to the North Pole. The further north designation designates areas that have history with Israel that can all be found in Turkey, modern-day Turkey, which is north of Israel. And he's going to argue etymologically for the identification of cities that did exist during biblical times and during the first century there in the Middle East as opposed to cities in Russia. He's going to argue it etymologically for this reason or this way. In the ancient Hebrew language, there are no vowels. And as a consequence, as words moved from language to language, as they were interpreted and reset, vowel sounds change. But consonants stay consistent and consonant sounds sometimes were substituted for other consonants that sounded the same, like CH and K would both pick up that sound. 
There also was a letter that used to be, used to look like this. It was an S with a mark over it, an aspirith mark, so that it was pronounced sh instead of s. Does that make sense? And so Fred also argues, since those two letters exist with two different vocalizations, just because you find a word with an S in it, if the original word had a sh sound, you shouldn't change the consonant. You still have to continue on with the original sound of the original consonant. So based on that, those are the methods of interpretation that he's going to use in order to say that vowel sounds do change, but you have to look at the consonants. And as you look at the way the consonants have moved language from language, it's really easy to start eliminating some of the Russian cities. So here's what he writes. The terms found in Ezekiel 38, and by the way, I'm starting at page 6. I've just described the first five pages to you where he explains his hermeneutical approach. But I didn't want to read the whole book to you because there's really nothing more fun than listening to Jim Reed on a Wednesday night after you've been working all day and you're trying to stay awake, and then Jim decides to read ancient language stuff to you. So, <laughs> the terms found in Ezekiel 38 that must be considered are, as in the King James Version, Gog, Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, you find them in verse 1, Persia, Ethiopia, Libya, we find in verse 5, Gomer and Tamarga, you find in verse 6. Of these, some are easily identifiable. The most obvious nations will be treated first, and then we'll proceed to the more difficult. Starting with Libya, Persia, and Ethiopia, Libya, which also went by the name Put, remains today bearing the same name, lying just west of Egypt. Persia, also remaining until the present day, is now known as Iran. Biblical Ethiopia, which was called Kush, or the letters K and the S with the aspirate over it, is not the Ethiopia of today, but rather is the land just south of Egypt in what we now know as northern Sudan. So that's Libya, Persia, and Ethiopia. Tamarga, which would be known by the consonants T-G-R-M, presents only a little more difficulty. Tamarga was a descendant of Noah through Japheth and then through Gomer. You can read about it in Genesis 10, 1 to 3. He's also known to the Assyrian records as, and I don't know if I can pronounce it right, Tilgarimu, T-L-G-R-M. The inserted L is not uncommon and more than likely was silent in that language. I just pronounced it, but what the hey? That was a city-state of eastern Anatolia, Asia Minor, part of Turkey. More specifically, as Ryrie states, the southeastern part of Turkey near the Syrian border. So this identification is generally acknowledged by all. Everyone who writes about identifying those cities agrees that that's where Tamarga lays. Gomer, G-M-R, has been mistakenly referred to as Germany because of the supposed similarity of linguistic construction. This position has two serious errors. 
One of them is that the R and the M would have to be reversed. The consonants would have to change order. Ezekiel wrote of GMR, not GRM. The reversal is unwarranted linguistically. Furthermore, this similarity and inversion is based upon a comparison of Ezekiel's GMR with a modern English from Latin designation for Deutschland. Clearly, the similarity then is only superficial, for two errors rule out absolutely any possibility of identifying Gomer with Germany. However, GMR is well known to the ancient world as the Gemari, GMR, of Northern Asia Minor or Cappadocia. These people are also known as the Sumerians or Cimmerians, KMR. This seems to be the simplest and most obvious interpretation. Gomer, then, is Gamare, which is in Asia Minor or Cappadocia. Rosh. The identification of Rosh presents some difficulty. Some understand it to be a proper noun referring to Russia rather than as a simple noun or an adjective, meaning head or chief, which is its normal meaning. Although this interpretation may be allowable on grammatical grounds, it suffers from several problems. The first is that there is absolutely no place on earth that is known by this name, Rosh. And of all the occurrences of Meshach and Tubal, the biblical and non-biblical writings never associate them with a place called Rosh, as the translation, the Prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal would suggest. There are linguistic problems here as well. As Unger admits, linguistic evidence for the equation of Rosh with Russia is confessedly only presumptive. The first problem is that the similarity is in sound only, but not in consonantal configurations. Notice that it is Rosh, R, the S with the aspirate, not Rus, R with a simple S. Furthermore, the problem encountered earlier, the supposed similarity, is based on a comparison with a much more modern word. The term Russia comes from a late 11th century AD Viking word, Rus, R, S. Again, notice the difference in consonants. So reading modern words and spellings into ancient Semitic terminology is to ignore all known linguistic norms. So since there is no place named Rosh associated with Meshach and Tubal, and since the attempted equation of it with modern Russia is obviously fallacious, it's easiest then to understand both chief, Rosh, and prince as related appositionally and used in reference to Meshach and Tubal. In other words, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. This is also the reading of the Targum, the Aquila, and the Vulgate. Meshach. Meshach, M, the S with the aspirate, K, is often mistaken for the modern Russian city of Moscow, capital and largest city of the Soviet Union. Again, this identification as even Ryrie admits, is unfounded. The problems are similar to those associated with the identification of Gomer with Germany. First of all, the S with the aspirate has to be changed to a simple S. This, again, is unwarranted linguistically. Furthermore, 
The similarity is based on a comparison of M S with aspirith K and then making the similarity with an English designation of Moscow. The Russian word, though, is Moskva, M-S-K-V, which makes it even less similar still. Did you follow that? Mm -hmm. Am I boring you to tears yet? No. Okay, good. okay. Kind of good. However, Mushki, which is M, S with the aspirate, K, of Central and Western Asia Minor, is known in the classics. Homer writes about it as Phrygia, and that fits very well. These people are known to Ezekiel, and this seems clearly to be the easier interpretation. Tubal. Tubal, T-B-L, is commonly identified with the Russian city of Tubalsk. Although this is allowable linguistically, it is not the best hermeneutically. Ezekiel knew nothing of Tubalsk or Moscow or Germany for that matter because they didn't exist. He was, however, well acquainted with TBL, a city of Tobol, of Eastern Asia Minor. And he was familiar with Gomari and with Mushki of Central and Western Asia Minor. Now, granted, God could have revealed Tubalsk and Moscow and Germany to the ancient prophet, but to assume that he did when Tobol was well known to him is just unjustified apart from some biblical warrant. If a man in New York, for example, speaks of Manhattan, he would not want anyone to assume that he's speaking of Manhattan, Kansas. Much less would he want anyone to interpret his words as referring to a Manhattan somewhere else in the world of which he's totally unaware. So similarly, to assume a place unknown to the prophet, like Tobolsk, when clear options are available to him both hermeneutically and exegetically, well, then it's untenable to think that he's thinking of something else. Tobal is clearly to be preferred. Gog is extremely difficult to identify. Some have identified him with Gyges, G-Y-G-E-S, however you want to pronounce that. 7th century BC, he was the king of Lydia, which is in extreme Western Asia Minor. He's also called Gugu, yes, G-U-G-U, -G -U, Gugu, in the A-S-H-U-R-B-A-N-I-P-A-L. Someone say that word. There it is. Some have suggested a place called Gagai, G-A-G-A-I, that's referred to in the Tel Al-Amarna letters, a land of the barbarians. There's also a god named Gaga, yes, who wasn't a lady. <clears throat> There's also a god named Gaga. I knew, I, I, I had to, really. I mean, how could I deny it? But he was born that way. So. Thank you. A god named Gaga, found in the Shamra writings, or Gagu, a ruler of the land of the Saki, north of Assyria, and Gaga, a mountainous region north of Melitene, have all been offered as alternatives. Some have understood Gog to be a historical figure, such as Alexander the Great. One plausible explanation is that Gog is merely an official title 
or a general designation for any enemy of God's people. This interpretation is based on the Septuagint rendering of several kingly names in the Old Testament. Perhaps Gog is only a derivative of the word Magog. None of the above suggestions have sufficient evidence to make a certain identification. It is most probable that Gog is a person, but geographical identification is not given for him. Magog. Magog, a descendant of Noah through Japheth, presents the most difficulty. Those who see it as Russia appeal to Josephus, who said Magog founded those that from him were named Magagites, but they are those who are called by the Greeks the Scythians, who live north and northeast of the Black Sea. The fact of the matter, however, is that nothing is known about Magog. Absolutely nothing. Josephus guessed, and his guess may be as good as any, but the place has not been identified. The appeal to Jacinius is impressive, but it must be remembered that Jacinius was a great lexicographer and grammarian, not an authority on ancient history. His statement was just a guess also. In fact, it is highly probable that Josephus was Genesius's source for this information. Furthermore, though the Scythians are of the Japhetic line, they are believed by historians to be descendants of Gomer through the Ashkenaz. This is not true of Magog. To identify Magog as the Scythians is without support from historical anthropology. So although Magog cannot be identified specifically, it seems that scripture does give a clue at least to the general vicinity, because first, Gog is known to be an Anatolian name. Further, if Meshach and Tubal have been identified correctly and are in Asia Minor, Magog must also be a part of Asia Minor as well, since it says they, Meshach and Tubal, lived in the neighborhood of Magog. Ezekiel 38.2 states that Gog, who is the, quote, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, is of the land of Magog. So if Gog is the prince of Meshach and Tubal and lives in the land of Magog, it seems reasonable that Magog would be in close proximity. In summary, the Scythians were a people other than the Magogites, and Magog is not able to be specifically identified unless it is a general reference to the land of Asia Minor. The North Parts. Another argument for seeing Russia in this prophecy of Ezekiel remains namely Ezekiel's statement that Gog will descend from the north parts. 38.15 says that. The word indicates uttermost parts of the north or the furthest north. This, it is assumed, points directly to Russia. The major objection to this is also based on a commitment to consistent historical interpretation. Scriptural terminology must not be forced into a 21st century A.D. map. To Ezekiel, the farthest north was Asia Minor. From there, you sort of jump off the edge. To extend Ezekiel's frame of reference any further is without exegetical warrant and therefore cannot be right. Moreover, if Asia Minor is not the farthest north, then why would we stop with Russia? One more fact is worthy of observation here. 
In verse 6, this same geographical description, farthest north, is also given of Tamarga. And yet virtually everyone agrees that Tamarga is in eastern Asia Minor. So if Asia Minor was far enough north for Tamarga, why not Gog? The problem is obvious. Summary. It's been shown on the basis of exegesis, hermeneutics, linguistics, and historical anthropology that, number one, Gomer cannot be Germany, but rather it's Gomari. Number two, Meshach cannot be Moscow, but Mushki. Number three, Tubal is not Tubalsk, but Tabal. Number four, Gog is probably a person. Five, Magog is unidentifiable except as a general reference, the land of Gog, and then it would be connected to Asia Minor. Rosh is not a reference to a place, but is to be translated chief or head. And seven, the terms north parts and north quarters cannot mean Russia, but within Ezekiel's frame of reference, they refer to modern Turkey. What Ezekiel prophesied then is an end-time battle involving the following nations coming against Israel. Turkey, which has Meshach, Tubal, perhaps Magog, Gomer, and Tagarma. Number two, Iran, which is known as Persia. Number three, Sudan, which is Ethiopia or Kush. And number four, Libya. Now concerning Turkey, precisely why Turkey, Anatolia, Asia Minor, is set forth in Ezekiel's prophecy under four names, Meshach, Tubal, Gomer, and Tagarma, cannot be exactly determined. Perhaps it points to some future political breakup of that area. Perhaps it's simply to clearly specify that the entire nation or the whole land is involved because Meshach is in the west, Gomer is in the central area, and Tubal and Tagarma are in the east. Concerning the nations that are involved and the nations that are not involved, though, with Turkey, Iran, Libya, and Sudan, Gog leads an Islamic coalition of nations against Israel. Turkey from the north, Iran from the east, Libya from the west, and the Sudan from the south. Note also the nations who are surprisingly absent, Egypt and Syria. Why? The only plausible answer is that they both have somehow been relegated to an inferior position militarily, which actually fits nicely into Daniel chapter 11, where both the king of the north, Syria, and the king of the south, Egypt, are destroyed by the Antichrist. Interesting how that works. But if you get nothing else from my reading of all that, outside of getting, man, Jim is boring, Outside of that, just recognize that the left-behind concept of the European Union being the, the ten-nation confederacy and Russia being the place from the north that's going to come down on Israel, as long as you're thinking like that and you're looking like that, you're more likely to miss the Islamic coalition that even at this moment is constructing itself to attack Israel mm -hmm. and have already stated for the last several years, we've seen them stating that they're going to brush Israel completely off the map. And pay attention to that rather than saying, well, that can't be it because it's got to be Russia. Linguistically, etymologically, Fred has done a good job of showing it can't be Russia. It's got to be those nations that surround Israel, which Ezekiel was familiar with. Those are the nations 
that God is predicting are going to come against Israel. And surprise, surprise, here we are all these thousands of years later, and those are the very nations that are still planning to drive Israel into the sea. What are the chances? Except that God knows exactly what he's talking about. Yes, sir, Tom. The geographic areas you laid out fit exactly what has been termed the Islamic Caliphate over the last five, six years. And they haven't given up on that idea. Oh, no. No, no. Yes, sir, go ahead. I'm so disappointed because neither Barack Obama nor Donald Trump can be the Antichrist now. It's a shame, ain't it? Yeah. <laughs> all right, so let's actually get into our text. That was all introduction. I don't know if we'll make Ezekiel 38 and 39, but it is descriptive by itself. It's not going to take a great deal of exposition in order to understand what's being said, especially with the introduction we just got. Chapter 38, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So him is a prince who's referred to as Gog. See how you get all that? Yep. Okay. Say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords, Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, and all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops, Beth Togarma with the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Be prepared and prepare yourself, you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be summoned, and in the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword. Okay, now that's fairly cryptic, but if my timeline is accurate, then there's already been the time of tribulation, that would be the time of the sword, then there'd be a time of peace. During that thousand years of peace, where the devil isn't deceiving the nations anymore, Jerusalem is essentially going to live without walls. They don't need walls. They're at peace. They've got a thousand years of peace. And so God, notice here, takes credit for being the sovereign hand behind bringing these nations against Israel again after they have been at peace. And the peace happens after they have been under the sword. And then God is going to bring them out, and the way he does it is he releases Satan. Satan makes a beeline for Gog and Magog, and now God says, but that's really me, because behind it all, behind everything, behind every attack against Israel that we've seen so far in this book and among all the prophets, it's always God who's doing it, even though he's using foreign nations to accomplish it. God is saying he's going to do the same thing. After many days, you will be summoned. Notice that. You're going to be called. When in the latter years you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations. Who are the inhabitants that have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel? What people group is he talking about? 
Israel. Israel. He's talking about the Israelites, northern and southern tribes. He just described them in the last chapter. That He's going to gather them, bring them back to the land that he gave Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he's going to give them one king over all 12 tribes. They have been gathered from all the nations to the mountain of Israel, which had been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you will go up. You will become like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. And thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan. Isn't that interesting that God can prophesy? You're going to have evil thoughts. Thoughts are going to come into your head. This is the same God who Paul writes about and says that God is going to turn them over to a strong delusion so that they'll believe a lie and be damned. This is still the way a sovereign God works. This is still a sovereign God who can allow that evil thoughts are going to come into your mind. You're going to devise an evil plan. Verse 11, and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who were gathered from the nations. So again, God's being very specific. They're coming against what people group? The Israelites, the ones who have been gathered from all the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center of the world. So God expects that Mount Zion in Jerusalem, the place where he chose to place his name, he calls that the center of the world. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all its villages will say to you, have you come to capture a spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away cattle and goods, to capture great spoil? Therefore prophesy, son of man, and say to Gog, thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people Israel are living securely, now we know exactly who he's talking about. When my people Israel are living securely, will you not know it? And you will come from the place out of the remotest parts of the north, you and many people with you, all of them riding on horses, a great assembly and a mighty army. And you will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified through you before their eyes, before Israel's eyes, oh Gog, okay, now from what we know from Revelation, exactly how is he going to be sanctified through the eyes of Israel in his dealings with Gog and Magog and the nations that he brings up against Israel? Well, it's going to be by destroying them in the sight of Israel. So this all fits together. Thus says the Lord God, verse 17. Are you the one of whom I spoke in former days through my servants, the prophets of Israel, who prophesied in those days for many years that I would bring you against them? And it will come about 
on that day, when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger and in my zeal and in my blazing wrath, I declare that on that day, there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel and the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. And I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains declares the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him, and I shall reign on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain of hailstones, fire, and brimstone. Does that sound familiar? It's the same way he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. How frequently have you heard me say, God is in the enterprise of glorifying himself. Here's God saying so. I will magnify myself, and I will sanctify myself, and I will make myself known in the sight of the nations, and they will know that I am Yahweh. That's God's plan. Chapter 39 then says, And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog. Say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I shall turn you around, I shall drive you on, I shall take you up from the remotest parts of the north and bring you against the mountains of Israel. And I will strike down your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. And you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I shall give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and every beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken it, declares the Lord God. I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety. And they will know that I am the Lord, and my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know, the Gentiles, the Goyim, will know that I am Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel. Behold, it is coming. And it shall be done, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs, spears. For seven years they'll be making fires out of them. And they won't take any wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will be making fire with the weapons." And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. And it will come about on that day that I shall give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea. 
and it will block off all the passers-by. So they will bury Gog there with his multitude, and they will call it the valley of Haman Gog, the valley of the multitudes of Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I magnify myself, declares the Lord God. And they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. And as those who pass through the land pass through, and anyone who sees a man's bone, they will set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of the multitude of Gog. And even the name of the city will be Hamona, and they will cleanse the land. And as for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field and say, assemble and come together from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth as though they were rams or lambs or goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you, and you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers and mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. And I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed, and my hand, which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. And the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me. And I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hands of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgression, I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, and now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I shall be jealous for my own holy name. And they will forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they perpetrated against me, when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back, from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they shall know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gather them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any longer for I shall have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now, can you see why Paul would read things like that 
and come to the conclusion he comes to in Romans 11. That after the time of the Gentiles comes to its fullness, then all Israel will be saved. It's exactly what Ezekiel predicts. What Paul says in the New Testament is totally in league with what the Old Testament prophets have said. Nothing's changed. It's not like, oh, the new covenant is here, and now Israel somehow magically has become the church, and the church is Israel in the Old Testament, and God is done with national Israel. And when you see the things that God says, the things that God predicts, and the declarations that God makes, that he is ultimately going to glorify himself in the way that he punishes Israel, scatters Israel, then regathers Israel, establishes Israel, makes his son king over Israel, gives them the land that he has always given to Israel. How do you say, well, that's the church? They've missed the whole story. They have missed the whole story. That, that's the point. I keep saying over and over again, and I'll say it once again, and we know that God says over and over again that he's going to be faithful to Israel. We know that it says that in the Old Testament over and over and over again. You're either going to base your faith, base the Christian faith, on everything that the Bible says, or you're going to go down the really treacherous road of deciding which parts of the Bible are valid and which parts of the Bible you don't believe and you have to make up some analogy for or you have to explain away or you have to describe some other way. The Bible, if it's plain about anything, it's plain about God's intention to restore Israel. It said over and over and over again, Old and New Testament. Which I say again is why the disciples would come to Jesus after 40 days, 50 days of talking about the, uh, the kingdom to come. And they would ask him the question, so you're going to do it now? Because obviously during that period of time, he didn't say anything that undermined their confidence in what the prophets have said. And what the prophets have predicted. They were anticipating that everything God said is absolutely sure, certain, and true. And that's the way that I think we have to approach the Bible. We have to approach the Bible as every word of God is absolutely certain and true. And just because it hasn't happened yet, just because it hasn't happened in our lifetime, just because it hasn't happened in the last couple thousand years, proves nothing because... I'm still anticipating Jesus coming back. Last night, Steve said at men's meeting, I want Jesus to come back before homecoming. And I got a bunch of stuff to do between now and homecoming, so I'm with you. <laughs> I'm totally in that. I would like Jesus to come right away. But you know what? The fact that he hasn't come back for the last 2,000 years hasn't lessened my insistence, my confidence, my hope that he's coming. So the fact that the Bible says over and over, God's going to restore Israel just because he hasn't done it yet doesn't mean he's not going to do it. It just means he hasn't done it yet. And that, thank God, he's dealing with the Gentiles right now. He's bringing people in via the new covenant of grace. He's bringing people in until that number comes to its fullness. 
And when it does, Christ is coming for the church. When that happens, God returns his attention to Israel, the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again that Jeremiah calls the time of Jacob's trouble is then going to occur, and then Jacob's kingdom, and then Jacob's restoration, and then a thousand years of peace, and then God is going to bring Satan out of the abyss. He's going to make a beeline again for Gog and Magog, that area. God is going to make sure that Satan is allowed, the same way that God makes sure Satan isn't allowed to deceive the nations. He's going to make sure that they are allowed to deceive the nations because he even says so. He even says evil thoughts are going to come into your mind. You're going to start having evil thoughts and you're going to act on them. Why? Because I said you're going to. And then you're going to come up against Israel and then I'm going to pour out my fiery wrath against you. And that, according to Revelation 20, is the end of what we would know as this age. Revelation 21 starts with the age to come, the new age, and then the new Jerusalem of all things. And so I can't escape the very Israelitish tone of everything God says in his word. And if we're going to be consistently Christian, then we have to be consistently biblical, and that, we, and that means we have to consistently say that a sovereign God can do anything he wants, and he's told us what he's going to do. He's told us what he's doing with Israel, and if you look around the world right now, by golly, he's doing it. And that's amazing. This is so plain. He says, uh, I'll bring back my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink the wine. They'll make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. How can you say it any plainer? You just, you can't say it plainer. The only reason that people would deny that, one of two reasons, uh, I'll give them benefit of the doubt. One of two reasons that they, that they don't understand that. Either they just don't read it, and, and I'm not being sarcastic here. Um, I have seen ministries, especially some of these online ministries, that just concentrate on one aspect of the Bible, whether that's just eschatology or whether that's just the five points and the, you know, those doctrines. You know, it's just, it, if it's not about election or limited atonement, we don't preach about it and haven't ever. And so they've just never really read. Aren't that interested in it? Yes, they're not interested. They've just never explored it. They just, the other reason is people read it, but it doesn't fit with their system. And so they have to do something. They either have to change their system. And the truth of the matter is men will fight much harder for their tradition than they will fight for the word of God. They will defend their tradition tooth and nail. And so when they come up against stuff like this or even preaching like this, they'll say, well, that can't be true because my system says the church is Israel and Israel is the church. And so the promises that are made to Israel being fulfilled in the church, that's what my pastor believes. And that's what some of the reformers believed. And that's what my amillennial background believes. And so I, when I read it, I have to read it with the blinders that don't allow me to see what it actually says. I have to read it through the lens of the system that I've adopted. And I disagree with that entirely. That's why here at GCA we have tried so hard for this many years to never 
develop a system that we impose on you. Outside of plank of wood, I know, but, but we've just tried very hard to not impose dispensationalism on you or covenantalism or amillennialism or just, just let the word say what it says and whatever camp that makes us sound like we're in, then so be it. But I'm not going to impose a camp on you. Who they think? Who they think the exile? I will bring back my exile people to Israel. Well, you're you're arguing with the choir here because right. I'm with you. I'm I'm totally with you. Right. How can they argue that? You know, I I ask the same question. I scratch my head and I say, how? How can they say this? How can they read this? And more astoundingly, everything. I just saw this. Just I just read an article that I won't get into, but. Everything good in the Old Testament said about Israel, that's the church. And consistently, everything bad said about Israel, that's Israel. It's like, how do you do that? How do you get away with that? How do you? It's, it's just a really, really dodgy hermeneutic. It's because they don't read this. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them. We know where... What does it say at the end of Jeremiah 31? This is the last verse of Amos. Right. But I was just saying, just like Amos, just like Jeremiah, at the end of Jeremiah 31, he says, as long as, the, as there's waves in the sea, and as long as there's seasons on planet Earth, Israel will be a nation before me. So I just don't know how many times God has to say something before people go, ah, yeah, that's what he means. The rest of Ezekiel is all dedicated to a temple that hasn't been built yet, and yet it's described in remarkable detail. Measurements and lengths and walls and the sacrifices and the courses and the priests and the it's all described in in tremendous detail and I have yet to read any covenantal amillennialist who has been able to take a shot at allegorizing the rest of Ezekiel even though they can do some damage with you know the dry bones I've never heard them say let me describe the temple in a way that makes it the church. Because you get into animal sacrifices and everything else. Oh, so the church should do animal sacrifices? Okay, then it has to be about Israel. And still that temple's never been built. What are you going to say about that? Oh, well, but the animal sacrifices can't happen because Christ has already died once for all and he's the final sacrifice. So you're saying the sacrifices can't happen? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So then you're saying the Bible's wrong. Ezekiel's wrong. The prophecies are wrong. Even though you've seen him be right time and time again. And even though Jesus quotes from him and John refers to him over and over again, you're saying he's wrong now? Well, no, I'm not saying he's wrong. He's... It just goes in big, big circles at that point. I say Ezekiel has a batting average we have to respect at this point, and whatever he says is coming, just is coming. And that's just how it is. So we'll talk about all that starting next week, and it'll take us several weeks to get into Ezekiel's temple. All right? All right. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.